podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Dr. Rogerio Pintu, who is the Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Social Work. He's an expert in community-based participatory research and mixed methods research. Dr. Pintu will be presented with the Carol Hollinshead Inspire Award for Excellence in Promoting Equity and Social Change at CEW's 2020 Advocacy Symposium. Dr. Pintu, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and what drives you to work towards social change? Sure, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really very happy to be here and a little, I don't know, a little emotional about the whole, you know, Inspired Award. And so it's, it's really very nice. I thank you very much for giving me a chance to actually introduce myself before the actual receipt of the award. So, yes, I was born in Brazil many, many years ago. And I basically lived in Brazil for my entire childhood and my adolescence under a brutal dictatorship. The dictatorship began when I was born, basically. And for those 20 years, I think it became very clear to me that things worked well for some people and did not work well for others. So that's why I think my understanding of the lack of social justice in some places and what it can do to individuals and families and institutions as well can really be horrible and why we need to work very hard to change those conditions. I personally was the youngest of eight siblings, and it wasn't easy. My father died when I was about seven, and my mother had to raise all of us by herself. She just had gotten a job for maybe like a year before my father died as a janitor, as a matter of fact, in a school, a family school, to which she had to take two buses to get to and spend a very good part of two hours getting there and coming back. My observations of my mother's struggles at a very young age really inspired me profoundly to understand and try to do anything I could to change those conditions that were oppressing my mother as a woman. And of course, as she got better, as we, you know, we grew up and some of my siblings began to work and, you know, more money came into the family and we got more education, we learned better how to advocate for ourselves. So life became, you know, better, but it was very difficult for a long time there, living in those conditions, a very small apartment, two very small bedrooms. It makes me think about, you know, like what's going on today with COVID-19. So since March through... Throughout the summer, I did a COVID-19 series where I questioned what's happening in the country and globally in terms of COVID-19. And initially, it was a focus on stigmatization of Asian populations as the president started the whole thing. But then it really clearly very quickly morphed into discussions about racism in our society, racist attitudes, and how we could undo it. So I held many of those events. I think it was a total of 19 of them altogether once a week. And what kept coming back for me, and I think I even say in one of them, is what I would do as someone living in a very 
small bedroom with my entire family of 10 and people telling me that I needed to keep distance from them, that I had to you know, establish some distancing from other people. It just felt that the very things that were, of course, public health oriented and, of course, the right things to do simply would not have worked for my family. They would not have worked for me because we lived under very difficult circumstances. So it's interesting that there's a war just coming at this point in my life when so much is happening around me. It just makes me feel stronger in terms of renewing my commitment to continue the work to do social change, which, of course, as a professor of social work for you know, many years now, uh, it's a natural thing for me to do because it is what I teach my students who then will go out as social workers and hopefully help those who might need a little help to find better quality in their lives, better well-being, find better jobs, you know, and take care of their families. But those are the, the key things that actually, you know, inspired me from a very young age. That's quite inspirational. I was wondering, you know, so much of what how the media picks up on differentiated effects of COVID on different populations. It gets boiled down to race. But what you're talking about is really social health determinants. What might be a better way for us to be framing the COVID challenge and how it's disproportionately affecting different communities, of course, including race, but also tying in all mm-hmm. these different aspects of like housing conditions, you know, poverty conditions and how that affects people's ability to access health care. How might we talk about it in a different way? Well, and you know, like, you know, so many of the variables are just, you know, enumerated, like, you know, gender might be another extremely important one, you know, sexual orientation. I mean, all of those things become so important when we are living at a time that if, you know, like you asked me, what is what are the priority for me? We have to stop lying to the population. We have to have a government that is serious about the truth, uh, that it will not lie to its population, and that it will then develop the very strong and public health plan that we need in order to feel safe. To me, that's where we begin to reframe the whole thing. It's not even about reframing it, it's just seeing it for what it is. We unfortunately have a current administration, and this surface. So many times in the COVID-19 series that I conducted for the past, you know, few months, at some point it appears that our current administration and those who are begging message in maintaining it, uh, and perhaps even beyond the number of years that it is supposed to be there, what keeps coming up for me over and over again is that at some point the administration made the choice to let some populations actually die along the way, right? There were certain things that could have been done very specifically in a focused manner to help those who we began to learn were being affected inequitably. Mm-hmm. And so, but instead of having those very focused interventions that would be very specific to the populations that were mostly affected by covid One, we didn't really have a centralized plan, and two, whenever there was a plan, it was so universal that it did not really take care of the population that we knew needed to be in front of the line in order to get the services and in order to get the testing and in order to get all kinds of other things. It is amazing that even in the middle of a pandemic that is affecting racial groups and age groups and gender identities very differently, that we, from the very beginning, see the 
even the testing for COVID was much more, for example, there was, it was much more frequently done in white communities, which were not necessarily the communities that were mostly affected. So even within a situation, this pandemic, which really has affected people very differently, we continue to have interventions that did not necessarily go to the core of the problems that we were seeing. So to me, if those things you know, could be somewhat resolved, I think that one would actually have like you know, a couple of ounces of energy to do the other things that one has to do. But I think that having felt so abandoned by the administration, some groups, you know, just took upon themselves to create the, the safety that they needed to create, which is no different from any other situation that we have historically in the United States and outside of the United States. What I have learned with COVID, and I am a researcher of HIV. I have been researching HIV for more than two decades another pandemic, you know, affecting people globally, right? I, and I'm not saying that they are the same. I'm not saying that people are behaving the same way in the two pandemics. But these are two major pandemics that we have affecting people across the globe. And it seems that a lot of the, the things that we learned from that pandemic, we are not using. I mean, there are many things that we learned about human behavior, how people actually develop their own safety plans, how people develop their own ways of avoiding, you know, contagion. But it's those things are still not uh, part of the vocabulary that we are using on a day-to-day -day basis to understand what's happening for us. It is almost like we spent all the many years behind us developing knowledge about how people protect themselves or not, how a pandemic can affect people very differently, how people react very differently to a new pathogen. It's almost like that that knowledge is not quite helping us as much as I think it could to tackle all the issues that we see today. And I think that that's because we do have in the culture around us I think a very clear message to people like myself, a professor in a university, that there are people out there that no longer see what we have to offer in terms of scientific knowledge as being valuable to them. I think that there is a very large portion of the population that feels that we are no longer important, that what we have to say does not hold that a lot of importance to them. And I think that that's a shame. I mean, it is unfortunate. But I also think it comes from, you know, the perpetuation of knowledge being something that the university, and I'm not saying the University of Michigan, I'm saying the university in general, you know, places of knowledge building, you know, sometimes have kept this knowledge very close to home and we have not shared enough of that knowledge before. We have not learned as much as we could have learned how to find the most effective and most humble ways to share the knowledge that we accumulate. And so not being part of what we do, a lot of populations around us basically said, we don't care anymore about what you have to say. And that's how I think that scientific knowledge has been neglected in so many ways, and not only neglected, but also rejected by some populations. And of course, we see that happening among the many leaders that we have in this country, where what, you know, academics have to say for them has become, you know, a little bit of a joke or the thing that they don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to imagine that your work as a community-based researcher helps to break down some of those stereotypes between research and its applicability to community. Can you talk through some of the ways that your approach helps bridge this gap? 
Sure. I mean, I think the major thing is really the understanding that when we do research without foster communities, we take an enormous risk that we might be studying something, that we can make a very scientific case why we should be studying it and how the results that we may come up with from a particular set of, you know, research questions how they might help a population or they may help a particular community. The problem is that when we make those assumptions, we may be making assumptions of of what the community needs, and the community may be thinking very differently as to what it is that they need. And I have interviewed a lot of people over the years in communities before actually taking a project to them to find out what it is that they perceive as being most important to them. I mean, for many of the communities that I worked with, particularly in New York City, I only, you know, I've been in Michigan for just a, a little more than five years. I lived the majority of my adult life in New York City. And I worked for Columbia University for many years there as a professor. So a lot of my participatory research uh, actually started in New York City. Although I do have to say that at some point I came to visit the University of Michigan and I met Barbara Israel, who is in the School of Public Health. She's a professor there who is really the person who most inspired me to do community-based participatory research a long, long time ago because of the way she encapsulates the idea of using a set of values to actually develop research questions. And that's one major value, which is you go to the community and you ask what it is that people think you should be doing. But that takes humility, right? I mean, you letting the community tell you what it is that they would like. A lot of researchers, you know, are very fast to accept the funding that comes from places like the National Institutes of Health or any major foundations like the Ford Foundation, etc. Those places actually have calls for research. So we are basically answering to what it is that they are telling us they think we should be doing. And for some reason, we seem to be able to do that a lot more easily than we can do that with communities. And I think to me, I equate the two things. They are no more important than the other. Of course, in order to do research, you need resources. But in order to have any research that actually is worthwhile to any community, you do need to have some entry in the community and you do need the participation of that community. Because if you don't, what happens, which is the second point that I would like to make, is you can bring back to the community beautiful answers to a research question, and you can even bring back, you know, really well thought out and well tested interventions that the community doesn't understand and basically may even reject. So the way I have, you know, been able to overcome some of those issues, and I'm not saying here that I overcome all of them, and clearly I am not doing this, you know, perfectly. I think I will learn how to do this for the rest of my career and beyond. But I think that by, you know, showing some humility and asking people what it is that you should be studying and, and actually developing and forging relationships with community members, practitioners in the community, and even politicians sometimes. In Brazil, for example, doing research in there, it is, it is really important. If you want anything to reach any policy, if, if you want to influence anything like that, politicians need to be involved from the very beginning, even when you are just coming up with research questions. So I think that that's one of the ways I have been able to overcome some of, some of those limitations. And then, of course, you know, bringing back, you know, whatever it is that I find, even if it is not something that might be so earth-shattering, but you still bring those things back to the community because it's important to the community where you're working. 
So that's how I have been doing this. And, and make sure that those relationships that one develops, you know, that they are lasting. I mean, I have a community collaborative board that I developed in collaboration with many colleagues and friends in New York City almost 20 years ago. And we are still meeting, you know, and we're still doing work together here in Michigan. I'm here. They are in New York City, and I'm still in touch with them in a very deep manner where we actually still do research together. So having those long-term relationships, you know, it is also very important. Yeah, when you look back over your career, what are three time points that stand out to you that you're really proud of? I think the first one is, is really the combination of my master's in social work and in my PhD. And what makes them, you know, like really remarkable for me is the fact that I had studied biology in Brazil. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I came to the United States. I came to New York. And I was undocumented for nearly a decade. I did all kinds of, you know, work that I could find, but it took me a long time to actually become documented. And so by the time I became documented, it had been almost 10 years between my bachelor's graduation. And so making the decision to move away from biology and actually choose social work as what I wanted to do was quite important to me. But also what it meant for me is that here I am coming out of a situation as an immigrant that really taught me what it is that I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which was to go back and look at the, the very people who had been in the same places that I had been as an undocumented immigrant and all the complications of being the one and what could I do to help not only immigrants for sure, but people who might be facing very similar problems. Mm-hmm. And so during my, my master's degree, I couldn't leave my job, you know, in order to do the master's program. And I'm very proud to have been able to find a place where I went to school on Sunday. I went to school on Thursday night and I had a, an internship in the place that I worked. At the time, I was working at at a high school as a laboratory specialist using the degree that I came with from Brazil and going to school full-time. That was not an easy thing to do, but it it really, in so many ways, made me feel that I needed to continue to do so. And I worked as a practitioner for several years, and then I decided to do my PhD. And again, I had the same problem. It's very expensive to do, you know, your master's program and your PhD program, which in social work, a lot of us, you know, we work a few years between the two. One of the reasons is because, you know, without having real social work practice, it is, in my mind anyway, I didn't feel comfortable that I would be teaching students to practice social work when I was coming from a perspective that I didn't have any practice, right? Mm -hmm. So I did practice social work while I was doing my master's program and beyond and continued to work during my PhD. And I tried to do my PhD as fast as I could because by that point, I was really like way, you know, into my 30s and still doing this thing that was very costly. So I ended up finishing my PhD very quickly in three years working full-time, and I'm really very proud of that. I don't recommend anybody (laughs) to do it, and I don't think that I could have done it without the help of friends, Uh, certainly not the help of my husband, today husband, then partner, David Pratt, who sometimes would see me so exhausted, and I could barely, you know, be reading the papers that I had to read for my classes, and I recall him sometimes reading those papers to me. You know, without that kind of help, I don't think that I could have done it. And friends who were extremely helpful to me while I was uh, doing what I had to do. 
Yeah, what was the final push that made you decide to go into social work? I'd imagine there was some click or event or something that prompted you to go seek that master's degree. Oh, yes. So here we are talking about the late 80s, right? I'm mm-hmm. coming to the United States. We are now in, in the 90s. And gay men across the globe, particularly in the United States, and of course by this mm-hmm. point in South America, like just dying, you know, left and right. And one, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this thing happening and petrified, right? I mean, I learned about HIV and AIDS when I was, what, like 17 years old, 18. So here's someone who is talking about stigmatization, right? Someone who's learning about this, you know, lethal disease that is being equated as my identity as a gay person. But I mean, it was the gay cancer when this whole thing started. I was petrified. And then I came to the United States, to a city where even more people were dying in New York City. Funerals happening all over the place. And so the only thing that I thought I could do about it was to volunteer. And I did. And I volunteered at AIDS Center of Queens County, which was at the time probably like two or three rooms, you know, maybe a little bigger than one floor in a building in Queens. You know, I learned very quickly that a lot of people needed help. And I became, there was a buddy program where you were assigned to a particular person. And at the time, I mean, there was not so much one could do, but one could take the person to the doctor, you could clean the house for the person, do shopping. And I did all of those things to the buddies that I had. But interestingly enough, the first person who was my buddy from this volunteer work uh, happens to be a social worker. Hmm. And, and in so many ways, that settled for me. I mean, his stories, what he had done with his life. I mean, at that point, he was no longer working, right? I mean, he was getting, you know, sicker and sicker, uh, and he eventually died. But it was extremely instrumental to meet that person. I mean, how could I possibly even imagine, right, that that was going to happen? And, and interesting enough is that I had applied for a master's degree in biology, and I was accepted into the master's program and with this incredible opportunity to work in the Museum of Natural History. And I just couldn't. I mean, there was really, uh, there was really like an enormous pull to go towards social work. And that's what I did. I applied for social work. And then the following year, that's when I started my master's program. Yeah, that's an amazing story about how you got involved in the buddy program in New York. I, too, was raised uh, predominantly by a single mom. And I just recall growing up knowing very few fields to even go into. So I just find it fascinating how people land in in degrees that aren't your doctor, lawyer, scientist, teacher fields who are first-generation students because the world is so small until you see all the possibility through education. Uh, Later in the academic year, you'll be presenting a workshop related to the Carol Holland's Head Inspire Award. What do you hope attendees will take away from your workshop? So the workshop is about when I was a doctoral student, I was in a pre-doctoral fellowship, which was put together by the Council on Social Work Education. And so this was a fellowship for, you know, underrepresented people, which I clearly am in terms of like many layers of diversity and underrepresentation. And what was so important about that fellowship called the Minority Fellowship Program is that I began to think about why I was so happy when I was, you know, 
with the people that I was together, why I was so happy when we went to conferences together, what was it that I was receiving from them, and I began to ask people. I created a framework, which was published many years ago, about what I think is most helpful to students who come to our universities. We, as universities for so long now, have been inviting diversity, and I think that you know a lot of universities have done a good work at bringing in diversity. But my question has always been since then is diversity alone doesn't really do very much. I mean, it does a lot for the university, but not for the individuals or the groups that are being brought in, right? Mm -hmm. Because diversity sometimes is so clashing that actually makes the person who comes in less likely to actually finish the studies that they start, less likely to get the job that they want, less likely to find a job in the geographic location that would be more convenient to them. I mean, there are many questions about bringing diversity to a particular university and what it is that it does for the person. So my framework posits that social capital is what is needed for an individual to come to a university and to be exposed to all the opportunities that majority groups had naturally because social capital usually develops through many different types of social supports, emotional, tangible support, informational support, many things that in some ways may be available, but they are always available in the university. They are not necessarily available at the same rate anyway to people who are underrepresented. I can say that not only from a personal perspective, but from the perspective of everybody in, in this fellowship, you know, that I was a member of. Uh, and of course, my my own experience as an underrepresented type of you know faculty, both in, you know, at least in two two universities now. So this is what I am going to talk about in my workshop. What I'm hoping to do is to help those who will join me to think about social capital, perhaps in a more in-depth manner, so that we can begin to think about helping underrepresented individuals a little more uh, outside of the idea that we all need to be mentored in a particular way. I think that the mentoring programs that universities by and large have I still assuming, you know, some connection between the two people being mentored, that it comes out of very much a mentoring technique that I think is still very heteronormative. It is still extremely white-centered. And I think we need to go beyond this sort of like diet that we think may be very helpful to some people, but that can actually become very damaging. And when that happens, you know, the university or the school can always claim that the mentoring was there and the person didn't succeed because something might have been wrong with the person. It is no longer the responsibility of the institution because, look, we have provided all that we can. So what I'm hoping is that this workshop will help us tease out what I, you know, what I just said to you and then look you know, into social capital development perhaps as a better way to think about how we can not only bring individuals to the university, but how we can help them develop the social capital that will help them to stay and finish what it is that they start and then get out of the university with enough social capital, enough network to go to the places where they need to go and actually be happy and have the salaries that they deserve. So that's what this is going to be about. Now, when I think about social capital, I, I often think of how families build up social capital as a way of securing the future generation's success. 
Like what types of yeah. things within social capital do you think can be built into a program at an institution? So we, we have, right? I mean, this Inspire Award is being given to the Faculty Alliance for Diversity in my school, of which I am one of the co-chairs. And we, as a Faculty Alliance for Diversity group, we have been using my framework in the past several years now to, you know, diligently to see if we can find programming that will help our students, the PhD students particularly, but we are expanding to Masters of Social Work students as well to help them find the three key ingredients of social capital, social support, informational support, and tangible concrete support. And that in many ways, you know, schools can provide those, right? I think, you know, one thing that people do more often is, you know, emotional support. Sometimes, unfortunately, you know, by asking faculty of color or, you know, women or, you know, people who are, already some, somewhat overburdened, trying to get promoted and get to tenure, to provide the spaces so that the students and other, you know, junior faculty and other people may come together to receive and to provide social support. And those things could be, you know, easy, easy things like a dinner or coming together to, you know, cook together. It could be a walk together. Things, you know, the usual things that we think about social support, emotional support. And, you know, a place where you can go and talk about things that you might feel uncomfortable, talking to your mentor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's really the point that I'm trying to make. And a place where you can receive from different people different types of informational support. Sometimes what happens is that the information that comes down is that, you know, it comes down from people who are, you know, doing really well. And sometimes they are doing very well because, you know, because of who they are, because they have been doing this for a long time. But I think we keep sending a message that, you know, the person receiving the mentoring needs to reproduce what the mentor is telling him or her or them. And when you think about social capital, that's not necessarily what it is we are talking about. We are talking about a lot more exchange, right? Mm -hmm. But an exchange that is not guaranteeing that the mentor will continue their legacies, which many times it's what it is that mentees are used to do, Mm -hmm. but that they are actually, you know, providing the social capital to that person so that that person can use the social capital elsewhere, not necessarily in the diet that was just established with the mentor. And so creating programming that can break that kind of cycle and provide opportunities for the next thing to happen. And I think along the way, you know, you cannot do those things without some concrete support. Things need resources. I mean, people, faculty need the time to do it. You you know, faculty are not going to do it if they don't have some allotted time specifically to engage in that kind of activity. So I also would like to bring that up in in the workshop to see if we can find solutions about how do we do it when we are already asked to do so much. You know, when do you start and when do you stop, you know, your volunteer work within the university? is a big question for the workshop as well. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. The one thing that I think surprises a lot of students when they come to here, it's not only the social capital, but it's, you know, the hidden curriculum of the university about how to engage and how to be successful in the classroom, how to network. And so I'd imagine that too could be translated as a part of the social capital that gets transferred in these relationships. 
No, absolutely. I, I think in every corner of the university, right? It is in the classroom when the student comes to your, you know, to an appointment. Mm-hmm. And now that we live virtually, I think that the possibilities are actually multiplying every day. It's just that we have to tap in on those possibilities and see which ones work best. And really, I mean, in my mind, I think what needs to be refocused here is how to develop the social capital. Uh, by looking at different ways and different types of social support. And in some ways, step aside a little bit from the possibility that it's, you know, one more powerful person bestowing knowledge or bestowing the resources or providing what the other person needs. I think there is a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot that can go wrong when that's the, it's extremely heteronormative, it's extremely patriarchal. And even if it is a woman providing the mentoring, for the example, it's still a patriarchal way of doing it. So the gender, you know, is there and we, you know, say, oh, but you see, it's a woman providing the, you know, the mentoring, providing the support to those individuals. Well, but it's being provided in a patriarchal form or matriarchal form then I'm not so sure it is, it is as helpful as it could be to the person who's being mentored. Well, I look forward to continuing this conversation, and I'm so grateful for your time and for you sharing your experiences with me. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.